0: Welcome to the Critique October 2012 Journal Club. I'm Neil Orford and this is the critique review of the last month of the critical care literature and what a month it's been. We're going to look at fluid trials, ARDS trials, sedation, blood products, ECMO, sepsis, long term outcomes and pediatric literature. So let's start with the big study of the month the CHESS trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a landmark paper in the critical care literature and a major achievement by the ANZICs CTG. It adds to the major contributions they have made in the area of fluid and critical care with the previous SAFE trial. So this trial was performed in Australia and New Zealand, where voluvin was being introduced and marketed into hospitals, but had not yet become a regular part of the ICU landscape. Major concerns about the safety of this class of agent exist, and an opportunity existed to perform a safety efficacy trial before its use became entrenched and possibly equipoise disappeared. Now, Fresenius Cabai, the producers of this product, provided major funding to the CTG, which is a courageous decision for the company. This prospective trial randomized 7,000 patients requiring volume resuscitation and ICU excluding cardiac surgery and impending or current dialysis and intracerebral hemorrhage, to either starch, which was 130.4 voluvin, or 0.9% saline. So what did they find? Well, firstly, the patients were similar at baseline. The starch patients got less fluid in the first four days and more blood in the first four days and had higher CVPs. There was no difference in 90-day mortality, So for starch, it was 18% compared to saline, 17%. The starch patients had a higher requirement for renal replacement therapy. That's 7% in the starch group and 5.8% in the saline group, confidence intervals of 1 to 1.45, p-value of 0.04. The starch group also had lower urine output and increased creatinine levels. There was no difference in coagulation failure. Surprisingly, the starch patients also had a higher incidence of hepatic failure, which was 1.9% for starch and 1.2% for saline, a relative risk of 1.56. Finally, there were also increased adverse events in the starch crew, a total of 5.3% compared to 2.8% for saline, and this was particularly the pruritus and rash. So in summary, it seems starch as a volume replacement in ICU, doesn't alter mortality, maybe is a bit more effective as a plasma expander than saline in the first four days, but leads to increased renal and hepatic toxicity and makes you itchy when you go home. So the question I have is, is there a valid argument to continue using starch products in critically ill patients? So staying on fluid, what else do we need to sort out? Well, a paper published in JAMA this month by Belomo and colleagues looked at the association between a chloride liberal versus chloride-restrictive IV fluid strategy and kidney injury in critically ill adults. So could administration of chloride-rich fluid be detrimental to critically ill patients, in particular to their renal function? With IV hydration and resuscitation fluids replete in chloride it would certainly have an impact on practice if it was the case. So this prospective pilot study compared 760 patients receiving standard IV fluids in a tertiary ICU during a pilot period to 773 patients receiving chloride-restricted fluid after that. So the chloride-restricted fluid was no saline, um, no 4% gelatin, no 4% albumin, but they could get Hartman's plasmolite and chloride-poor 20% albumin. Now, the intervention worked as chloride administration decreased from 694 millimoles per patient to 496 millimoles per patient. In addition to the study fluid, there was related potassium and lactate administration that was increased. So the change in chloride administration was associated with a decrease in the mean serum creatinine, a decrease. Incidence of acute kidney injury from 14 to 8.4%, and a decrease in requirement for renal replacement therapy from 10 to 6.3%. There was no difference in mortality, length of stay, or long term renal replacement therapy. So, why would this work? Well, the authors argue that hyperchloremia and metabolic acidosis may lead to renal vasoconstriction decreased GFR due to activation of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism from increased chloride delivery to the macular denser. In addition, there may be actions on thromboxane release and angiotensin II receptors. What now? Well, there was more than one change in this study, as the intervention group not only had less chloride, but they got less gelatin, less albumin, and changes to their other electrolytes. It wasn't a randomized RCT, but a before-and-after study. So maybe this is an area for further prospective RCT-type research to evaluate the effects of chloride. The final fluid study that got our attention last month was Fluid Balance in Critically Ill Children with Acute Lung Injury, published in Critical Care Medicine, a collaborative effort between the Paediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators and the ARDSNET group. So the annual incidence of paediatric ALI is 2 to 12 per 100,000 population and it's present in 2 to 10% of PICU admissions with an associated mortality of 22 to 65%. This multi-centre retrospective cohort study examines the relationship between fluid balance and outcomes in 168 children with ALI and reports an association between increased cumulative fluid balance on day three and fewer ventilator-free days. The cohort had a mean age of three years, with 71% of them having a primary pulmonary reason for admission. So this is an interesting discussion about PICU study design. The authors point out a randomised trial of liberal versus conservative fluid in paediatric ALI would be the ideal study, but the low numbers and relatively few PICUs make it difficult to do they estimated that you would need 60 large PICUs enrolling 800 patients over four years, which is difficult. So instead, they adopted a Bayesian statistical approach using an a priori effect estimate from a larger previous adult trial, in this case, the FACT trial. The results from this study provide estimates that a trial of 200 patients would be adequate, with the assumption that a conservative fluid strategy would decrease ventilator-free days by two and a half days. This would require 15 large PICUs and four years, which is feasible. So we might hear more from this in the future. So let's talk about VAP. There's a trial published in Critical Care Medicine for the CDC Prevention Epicentres Program looking at objective surveillance definitions for ventilator-associated pneumonia. They start with the argument that the current definition correlates poorly with histology, are fairly subjective and are not easy to implement. So the aim of this study was to try and identify objective criteria to allow easier and ideally electronic measurement and compare rates and outcomes between hospitals more readily. They produced a number of definitions ranging from liberal to restrictive and then tested them. So eight hospitals contributed data from 8,123 patients. The least restrictive definition of VAP, which was just porulent secretions, produced an incidence of 26.3 per thousand ventilator days, which is pretty high. While the most restrictive, so a high threshold increase in ventilator settings after greater than three days of stable settings, plus abnormal temperature or white cell, plus secretions, plus positive cultures, was 0.2 per 1,000 days, which is a bit low. So what did they find from all this? Well, they said that the definitions were associated with increased hospital and ventilator days when compared to control definitions, but only the definition including sustained evidence of respiratory deterioration were associated with an increased risk of hospital mortality. Now, respiratory decompensation was defined by an increase in the daily minimum PEEP. Or, oxygen requirement after a period of stability. They also report that the best prediction for hospital death were definitions including changes in ventilation settings alone or with an abnormal temperature or white cell count. Finally, they found that the requirement for purulent sputum in the definition reduced predictive value for hospital mortality, and the inclusion of inflammatory or infection based criteria was not helpful. So in summary, what they seem to be suggesting is that the infectious inflammatory criteria we have in our definition of VAP aren't that helpful and that we should move away from this towards a sort of general ventilation and complication diagnosis that predicts poor outcome. And they're suggesting that should be trialled. Let's stay on the respiratory theme. Should protective ventilation strategies be applied to all critically ill-ventilated patients? not just those with ARDS. Most of you will have an opinion about this. And this study, an association between use of lung-protective ventilation with lower tidal volumes and clinical outcomes among patients without ARDS, a meta-analysis, was published in JAMA. And they've tried to answer this question. This meta-analysis of 20 studies where ventilated patients without ARDS or acute lung injury at baseline received protective ventilation versus standard ventilation reports firstly that there was a mortality benefit with protective ventilation compared to conventional so that was a 4.2% mortality in the protective group and 12.6 in conventional relative risk of 0.33 confidence intervals of 0.23 to 0.47 number needed to treat 11 that's a big effect When stratified by the gradient, which is the difference in the ventilation volume between groups in mils per kilo, the risk ratio varied from 0.35 if it was less than 4 mils per kilo to 0.26 for 4 to 5 mils per kilo, suggesting a sort of dose effect. The protective group had less pulmonary infections, shorter hospital length of stay and a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation. They also had higher PaCO2s, lower pH and similar PF ratios. When they analysed including PEEP and plateau pressures, they didn't seem to influence the results. So there are limitations, including variation in protective ventilation practice, inclusion of operative and critical care populations in the study, the relatively short duration of treatment. The median time of per protocol ventilation was only seven hours. But still it raises the question that protective ventilation may benefit all ventilated patients. And I guess the issue for us is, is this enough to change practice or will there be enough interest, enough equipoise to support a prospective study to prove this? A small retrospective cohort study also caught our eye. This study published in Intensive Care Medicine looked at the effect of using an extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal technique, the Lung. In patients requiring non invasive ventilation for exacerbations of COPD. So, the Nova Lung, a percutaneous femoral VA carbon dioxide removal technique, was used in 21 awake patients with COPD who were not responding to NIV. And they were compared to a conventional mechanical ventilation case matched cohort. The Nova Lung decreased PaCO2, increased pH, and decreased respiratory rate. The patients had a lower intubation rate, 10% compared to 100% in the control group, a shorter duration of invasive support. They had the extracorporeal support for nine days compared to conventional ventilation for 21 days in the control group, a lower tracheostomy rate and a shorter ICU stay, 23 compared to 42 days. There was no difference in 28-day or six-month mortality. So this is small, it's retrospective, there are some issues, a 42-day length of stay for patients with non-invasive ventilation and COPD seems long, but obviously this is an area of interest and technological change that we may hear more of in the future. So let's move on to sepsis, where there are a couple of interesting studies published, The first in critical care medicine was initial resuscitation guided by the surviving sepsis campaign recommendations and early echo assessment of hemodynamics in intensive care unit septic patients. It's a pilot study. This prospective observational study compared the therapeutic use of echo in early sepsis. So since the early goal-directed therapy paper, the issue of better assessment of myocardial function to guide fluid and inotropes Compared to surrogate hemodynamic markers, including mixed venous saturation, has been unanswered. In this study, 46 ventilated patients with septic shock were fluid resuscitated and administered vasopressors with hemodynamic monitoring, including mixed venous sats, within three hours of ICU admission. They then had a toe followed by a second toe after interventions. The toe was interpreted as either requiring fluid inotropes or vasopressors. This was compared to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, that is give fluid if CVP less than 12, vasopressors for amine less than 65 and dobutamine if mixed venous stats were less than 70%. So what did they find? Well, in terms of fluid challenge, toe and surviving sepsis guidelines were concordant to manage fluid loading in 70% of patients. But in the remaining, with a CVP of less than 14, ECHO suggested that fluid wasn't needed. Thus, the agreement for fluid learning was weak. They used a threshold value of change in SVC of greater than 36% during ventilation, and that's this SVC collapsibility index. So patients with an SVC greater than 36%, had an increased cardiac index and decreased vasopressor requirement at the second echo, suggesting some benefit. In terms of inotropes, toe assessment indicated inotropes were necessary in 14 patients, where the sepsis guidelines suggested this in only four. Again, weak agreement. Patients with toe evidence of LV dysfunction had a result in increase in cardiac index, when they were treated with inotropes, no change in heart rate, and a decrease in CVP. vasopressors also showed poor agreement. Interestingly, there was no RV dysfunction witnessed on toe. So what do we make of this? Well, there are limited numbers, so this requires validation. But it seems reasonable to further test the idea that surrogate hemodynamic endpoints may not be a reliable measure against which to titrate therapy. And we'll move with the evidence towards a more dynamic, direct assessment of the cardiovascular system, particularly by ECHO. The best way to manage LV dysfunction in sepsis is not known. With some evidence around worse outcome in patients with high CVP and good outcomes in responders to low-dose inotropes, it would be good to initially diagnose the LV accurately, that is with ECHO, and then test and assess the effects of therapy. So this is a really interesting area. Another sepsis study in critical care medicine looked at the association between a prior prescription of beta blockers and outcome in patients with sepsis. This retrospective study of 9,465 patients admitted to ICU with sepsis reported a lower mortality rate in those on chronic beta blockers, that's a 17.7% 28-day mortality, compared to those without. despite having a higher risk profile. This is very much hypothesis-generating, similar to that statin story. It is possible that there is a healthy user effect or other confounders that we don't know of. Equally, it is possible that beta blockers provide some LV protection, and this is an area worth exploring. Age of blood and the effects of this on outcomes in critical care is a hot area at the moment. A trial published in JAMA looked at the effect of fresh red cell transfusion on clinical outcomes in premature, very low birth weight infants. This prospective trial in 377 premature infants in six Canadian tertiary NICUs randomized patients to receive blood seven days or less in age compared to standard care. The composite outcome was necrotizing enterocolitis, retinopathy bronchopulmonary dysplasia, intraventricular hemorrhage and death. So the standard arm received blood of a mean age of 14.6 days, while the treatment arm received blood that was 5.1 days old. So there was a clear treatment separation. The infants received a mean of five transfusions each of 14 mils, so they are at a high risk of needing transfusion, making it relevant. There was no difference in the primary outcome or of infectious complications, and there were no transfusion reactions observed. So this is a negative study. Now, it's possible that the standard group did not receive truly old blood with a mean age of two weeks, so perhaps a significant storage lesion had not occurred. In addition, and of interest, the standard care group received blood using a practice in place since the 1980s called the Dedicated donor Policy, where a single donor unit of blood is allocated to an infant exclusively over the course of their transfusion need in ICU. Now, this was designed to reduce the risk of viral transmission, but does result in infants receiving blood that starts new and gets older. As a result, the distribution of age of blood received by this group varies quite a bit, and perhaps that dilutes the effect of old blood. So overall, this study suggests the use of less than seven-day-old blood does not reduce complications compared to standard care when there's a directed donor policy in very low birth weight infants in ICU. Let's move to endocrinology in ICU, the jigsaw that just gets harder. Greet Vandenberg and colleagues from Leuven have published a four-year follow-up trial in children who were randomised to tight glucose control compared to conventional therapy so firstly this is a big achievement they followed 456 children after critical illness for four years and performed complex neurocognitive development testing well done what did they find critically ill children receiving tight glucose control did not do worse than usual care The TGC group had improved motor coordination and cognitive flexibility compared to standard care. Hypoglycemia during ICU treatment, which often occurred in the tight glucose control group, was not independently associated with worse neurocognitive outcome. On average, critically ill children had a 15-point reduction in intelligence quotient. Now, this is interesting because we don't really know why it is and that, that hasn't been described before. So in summary, in an environment where there's a lot of negative publicity towards tight glucose control, this represents some moderating evidence. In addition, it opens an area of further exploration, which is why do critically ill children have long-term effects to their neurocognitive function? Staying on endocrinology in ICU, let's talk about steroids and sepsis. An article published in Intensive Care Medicine was a large database study which examined the relationship between low-dose steroids and outcome in approximately 18,000 patients with sepsis requiring vasopressors despite fluid resuscitation. What did they find? Well, about 9,000 patients received steroids and they were more likely to be given for pneumonia, ventilation and less likely in those with renal dysfunction. The hospital mortality for patients that received steroids was 41% compared to 35% in those that did not. The adjusted odds ratio for death was 1.18, with confidence intervals 1.09 to 1.26. This association persisted after adjustment for timing administration, organ dysfunctions and time. So this is the third recent sepsis trial registry review that suggests steroids are ineffective or harmful in septic shock, but that approximately 40% of eligible patients receive them something to think about. Okay, let's move to sedation and delirium. An article published in JAMA by the Sleep Investigators and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group looked at daily sedation interruption in mechanically ventilated critical patients who had a sedation protocol. So this 430-patient, 14-centre, prospective RCT compared patients who had just a nurse-led sedation protocol to the same sedation protocol plus daily interruption of sedation and they found that there was no difference in duration of mechanical ventilation. The protocol plus interruption group did have higher mean daily dose of midazolam, fentanyl and bolus benzos as well as an increased nursing workload This seems to tell us that a well-implemented sedation protocol removes the benefit of sedation interruption. This is a more pragmatic trial than previous sedation interruption trials where research coordinators were available to manage the interruption. So given those results, it's well worth going and having a look at this paper and at their nurse-driven protocol. The second sedation trial published by the SPICE investigators and the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, looks at the effect of early depth of sedation in intensive care with long-term mortality. So most sedation trials look at practice and outcomes after the first two days of ventilation. This prospective longitudinal cohort study characterized the early sedation practices in 251 patients in 25 ICUs in Australia and New Zealand and the association with outcome. So what they found was, firstly, the agents commonly used for sedation, analgesia and antidelirium are midazolam, propofol, fentanyl, morphine and then less commonly dexmedetomidine, haloperidol and diazepam. Clinicians set sedation targets only 25% of the time and then only 13% do they meet them. Routine sedation interruption is rare, 3% of study days, and sedation in the first 48 hours is very deep. The Cox Proportional Hazard Multivariate Regression Model showed early sedation depth was predictive of time to extubation. It also showed that 180-day mortality was predicted by early sedation depth, with every assessment in the deep sedation range in the first 48 hours associated with with a delay of extubation and an increased risk of death. So is it possible that this is the case, that over-sedating early can affect long-term outcomes? Now, of course, this is observational, and the multivariate regression model may not have adequately accounted for the severity of illness. Or sedation may be contributed to by other non-sedation effects such as illness. So this is not a definitive study, but it does create an argument to further investigate changes to early sedation. Last and not least, a study to take to your executive to show how important you are. The LeapFrog Group is a US group formed to stimulate breakthroughs in patient safety and improve the overall value of healthcare to consumers. One of the areas they focused on was full-time intensivist staffing in ICUs. This large retrospective cohort study was conducted in Princeton ICU with data collected for one-year periods before and after the LeapFrog initiative. In the pre-LeapFrog model, it was an open ICU, that is, the admitting physician managed the patient in ICU. In the post-LeapFrog year, board-certified intensivists were consulted for all patients were present a minimum of eight hours a day, every day, and a multidisciplinary ICU team managed the patient. The result was a decrease in ICU length of stay from 3.5 to 2.7 days, ventilator days decreased from 7.9 to 3.4 per patient, VAP decreased from 1.03 to 0.38 per 100 ventilator days. CLABSI decreased from 8.49, which is pretty high, to 1.69, still a bit high but much better, per 1,000 line days. There were cost savings, including bed and non-bed, and intensivist wages of $830,000 per annum. So intensivists are worth it. Well, that's it for the Critique Journal Club wrap-up for the month. Come to the site and have a look at the comments and the abstract yourself. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next month. Bye.